Good morning, Deer Creek Church. Great to see, uh, I think, 900 of you or so. Or at least it feels like 900 from up here. Hey, uh, we're going to start in an unusual place this morning. So I've been reading a lot of poems to my kids recently. So the uh, good people at Harper's Publishing have been putting together these kind of collections of children's poems. And you help me with these poems, okay? I, I know you'll be able to help me here. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, that lamb was sure to... Good, good. All right. I had some confusion in my own mind there. Ba-ba, black sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir, yes, sir. All right, that's good. So we are all... Uh, I don't think there are any kindergartners in here anymore. So that's good. We all remember. Here's the thing. When, when we say poetry, we function by rhyme don't we? Even the songs that we just sang, there's a certain meter to them, right? They have a certain length, and then they end on rhymes. That's how uh, English poetry works. Hebrew poetry doesn't work that way. And we've been going through the Psalms now for just over a month, and if you've been focusing on the Psalms, you realize, yeah, there's not a lot of rhyme, there's not a lot of meter. It, It seems like these poems are actually quite foreign, and that's because they are. These are Hebrew poems, and Hebrew poems work a little bit differently. Hebrew poems work much more like a picture. So if you think of a picture and an artist trying to create something that's attractive to the eye, they all have really one agenda. They want to get you to focus on one central point of a picture. Every painting that's ever been painted is trying to get you to attract your eye to one central point. And all of you know, the busyness around that point really works to draw your eyes in more and more and more into a central point. And that's how Hebrew poetry works. Hebrew poetry works like the first line and the last line function with each other. And then the second line and the second to last line function with each other. And then the third line functions with the third to last line. And they're all building up right to the center where the author is trying to tell you, this is what I want you to know. This is what I'm trying to communicate to you. And we're going to see that in Psalm 12. Psalm 12 is kind of that structure par excellence. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 12 this morning. I'm going to read it out loud. We'll pray and then we'll dive into our teaching. But keep that in mind that this is a word picture. These are pictures that David is trying to draw for us in order to communicate something very, very true about our world and about God. So verse 1, beginning Psalm 12, this is the word of God. David cries out, Save, O Lord! For the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who's master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men, is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we need your word. And as this psalm just told us, this rich truth, 
this rich truth that your words, O Lord, are pure words. They are like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. And God, we recognize this profoundly, that we are corrupted, we are polluted, we are sinful, and we need your pure word to speak truth into our lives. Would you open our minds, Lord? Be our teacher this morning. And would you help us understand what it is you're trying to say to us? And we pray this all in the name of our King, our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Russell Moore is a guy I listen to quite often. Russell Moore is this prominent evangelical figure and uh, an author. Russell Moore has a podcast. And on this podcast, over the course of really the last three episodes, he's had these very well-known influential culture shakers, men like David Brooks, who's a prolific New York Times best-selling author. He's a columnist as well. Adam Kinzinger, who's a congressman from Illinois. Jonathan Hyatt, who's a social, social psychologist at NYU. And at the beginning of this podcast, every single time over the course of these last three episodes, Russell Moore has pretty much said the same thing. He's asked a question, and I think you'll relate to this question. He asked all these men, is the world really as crazy as it seems? Does anybody else feel like asking that question? Now we're going to take a poll. Who thinks it's as crazy as it seems? Yeah, quite a few of us, right? And it's a valid question. It's a valid question because it can seem like the world really is growing crazy, that the world is being turned upside down. In fact, uh, I know of this couple, they actually moved to Colorado about two years ago, right before COVID, and they moved from Chicago. They bought this brand new house and this girl decided, I'm gonna go and walk around my new neighborhood. This is the first day that she moved in. She walks around her neighborhood, and lo and behold, she gets mugged on the streets of Denver. She's actually here this morning. I saw her, she walked in with a, a broken leg. That wasn't from the mugging. I think she just bro broke her leg. But it seems like the world's being turned upside down. One in four Americans, we're told, have some form of general anxiety disorder, meaning that Anything from depression to PTSD to any number of anxious disorders, one in four Americans are struggling with that in some way. Millennials feel this acutely. One news outlet recorded that nearly 60% of men millennials approached said they felt very worried or extremely worried all the time. More than 45% of those questioned said feelings about the climate, that is, you know, not the political climate or anything like that, but our actual world climate, that that is affecting their daily lives. Three quarters of them said that they thought the future was frightening, and over half of those say that they think humanity is doomed. And this goes outside of the United States as well, even to Canada, the great white north. Millennials there are diagnosed with what experts are calling blanket pessimism, which is a general pessimism about the state of their culture and their institutions, 66% surveyed said that they do not believe that their economic situation will improve throughout their lifetime. 77% said they do not believe that their political climate will improve during their lifetime. And to prove, this is definitive proof, that the world is upside down, Forbes magazine recently published an article entitled, How to Buy Land and Real Estate in the Metaverse. That's cuckoo, I'm sorry. Do you know what the metaverse is? If you don't, then you're over 55. <laughs> the world is being turned upside down, and sometimes it's actually helpful to look into the past, to look beyond ourselves, to see, hey, people have really always felt this way. The author uh, Shakespeare, in Hamlet, 
puts this on the words of Hamlet. Hamlet is looking after this murder, and he says, The times are out of joint, O cursed spite, that I was ever born to set it right. What Hamlet is saying, it's this apt description of saying, The times that he lives in are like a shoulder that has been popped out of joint. Things don't fit together now. There's immeasurable pain, and we feel, as humanity, paralyzed to fix it. The world is upside down. And to make matters worse, when we as followers of Jesus look at the Christian world, it seems to be equally out of joint, equally turned upside down. Pew has been tracking this for a while. The Pew Research Center, here's some more statistics, have been tracking the decline in the belief of Christianity throughout the United States for well over half, uh, half a century now. In 1970, they recorded that 79% of Americans believed in some form of Christianity. Fast forward to 2019, about 50 years later, that number is now 62%. And then along with this is also a rise in religious nuns. Religious nuns are those who claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. In the year 1950, that was 5%. Now, fast forward to today, 28%. And this is actually more truly heartbreaking is alongside this decline in belief is a steep decline in character. Less than a month ago, there was a report released by one of the biggest Christian denominations, not our denomination, although we're not above this sort of thing. A report was released by this denomination. It was produced by a third-party investigator. It totaled almost 300 pages, and it alleges that this denomination's top leaders had suppressed reports of sexual abuse, opposed proposals for reform, and denigrated and discouraged abuse victims who approached them for help. I personally feel how out of joint the times are. And, you know, this has really asked or or forced my wife and my wife Hannah and I to ask serious questions, challenging questions like, where will we send our kids to school? We want them to learn this, but definitely not that. And even if it's this school, we don't like this and that at this school. Will our kids own smartphones? And if they do, what age can they have smartphones? And will they be allowed to have social media when they have their smartphone? Where will we shop? This company supports X, but we don't support X. But this company is the best thing making the thing that we need. What do we do? Is this competing company any better than that? All the while, when you're asking these questions, you feel paralyzed, and we still have to make dinner. We still have to give medicine to our crying toddler. We still have to fix a gas leak in the basement. We still have to mow the lawn, and we still have to drink eight glasses of water in the day. Who can keep up? You feel like the world is upside down. Can you understand why this psalm begins, Help, Lord! Save, O Lord! And unsurprisingly, that angst, that cry echoed in the psalm, it is that word, Help, Lord! Save, Lord! It's the Hebrew word, Hosea, Adonai, Hosea. Everything seems upside down. King David saw it, we see it. That same cry was echoed in the time of Jesus as well. You probably are familiar with this story. But God's people during the time of Jesus were under severe military and political occupation. The Roman Empire, which was really at the height of its power during the time of Jesus or near that, it stretched all the way from Spain in the west, modern-day Spain in the west, to modern-day Iran in the east, the area of Judah where Jesus did most of his ministry. It was ruled by Governor Pontius Pilate. Jewish sources describing Pilate described him as a despot 
and a harsh ruler marked by greed and cruelty. He was actually known for his outright hostility toward Judaism and any other false religion in his eyes. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he recounts this one instance with Josephus where Josephus, or or sorry, with uh, Pilate, Pilate sent in a Roman legion into Jerusalem to take temple funds. And after sending this Roman legion in, stealing these funds, set aside for religious purposes, he built this large aqueduct system, and then he dedicated it to a pagan god. And it's under the weight of that military oppression and political occupation of one of the world's most dominating empires that Jesus rides into Jerusalem and crowds are following before him and following after him. And they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's the Greek form of Hosea. Save. Save now, King David. Save now. Son of God, the world seems like it's upside down. We just can't bear it anymore. The times seem out of joint. And David, as we go back to Psalm 12, you see in clear terms why David is crying this out. He, he begins painting his portrait. Remember, Hebrew poetry is a lot like a portrait. And he starts on the outer edge, really drawing us into that center point. And he begins by saying this, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished among the children of man. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Ross Douthat, he uh, is a pretty prolific author. He recently wrote a book called The Decadent Society. And in this book, he is making this main argument. It's a very simple argument. He's making this argument that America is in a state of decadence. And he really devotes the first two, three chapters just to defining what decadence means. And Dowtit concludes that after looking at multiple sources from multiple angles, he described decadence as this. He said, decadence is a general stagnation, decay, and exhaustion within institutions and cultures brought about by our high levels of material prosperity and technological development. And when we survey the United States, or if anybody's lived in 2022, we can see that there's merit to Dautat's thesis, can't you? Our economy, our institutions, our educational system, our labor force, all seem to be in a state of general decay, a a state of decadence. And whether it be a volatile stock market, Maybe you felt that up one day, down the next, or rising fuel prices, squeezing out our budgets. We had a $100 gas bill this uh, last Friday. Lack of institutional trust, meaning the questioning of elections or public health officials, whether it's inflation, making what was once cheap, surprisingly expenses. All of those want to make us cry out, help, Lord. Is there anything that you can do? Help us. People at Costco probably thought I was crazy the other day because I was lamenting in the middle of Costco saying this out loud. Help, Lord. Eggs are $4.50. $45 for a thing of diapers. Are you kidding me? It'll make you want to potty train. And observe, observe this. As legitimate as those cries are, and they are legitimate, As legitimate as the cries are at the decadence of American society, David's cry for help is altogether different. David does not lament national 
decadence or institutional decadence. Rather, David cries out because he looks at his landscape and he sees a moral and a spiritual decay, a moral and a spiritual decadence. That's what he cries out for. Look at verse 1. David says, the godly one is gone. The desire to please God in the hearts of people is missing. A love for who God is in himself is completely absent. He continues saying that the faithful have vanished. Meaning trust in God, obedience to God, commitment to God are no longer a priority. Morality as defined by God has been jettisoned and done away with. Worship and devotion to God has been discarded. In other words, a general spiritual apathy and malaise like a cloud hangs over David's world. Even among those who should be godly and should be faithful. And we can understand that. Beginning of this year, there was this uh, story of a pastor in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was a very gifted speaker. He was the pastor of the fifth largest growing church in the United States. In the United States, and his ministry had expanded to speaking arrangements throughout the U.S. He was a phenomenal preacher. He was starting these new ministries in the Southeast. But then, on one Saturday morning, breaking news came. On Saturday morning of a video posted on YouTube of him kissing a woman who was not his spouse. Breaking his vow to be faithful to her and to God. And after this was discovered, obviously the community was grieved. They expected that the pastor would resign and maybe others would hold him accountable and ask him to resign his position or maybe outright be removed from his position. But it was announced one week later that he would take a three-month sabbatical for counseling and then return to his position as normal. The ones who are supposed to be teaching faithfulness, godliness, they're vanishing, they're non-existent, and it's enough to make you think, make you want to cry out, are there any godly? Are there any faithful among the children of men? Have all of them gone? Have all of them vanished? And to make matters worse, David David adds to his picture. David adds to his picture, right, this outer frame that he's painting. And he prays, not only is godliness gone, not only has faithfulness vanished, but David in verse 8 adds to this and says, On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So you see what David is saying. He's saying, hey, not only has faithfulness vanished, not only has godliness declined, not only is there a spiritual decadence, but something else has taken its place, and it's vileness. Vileness is celebrated. Vileness is exalted. The whole moral and spiritual universe of God has been flipped on its head. G.K. Beale, who is a scholar, wrote once that really what David is describing here and what he's lamenting and what we often witness today, it's nothing more than what other parts of the Bible call worldliness. Worldliness is when the priorities of the world take precedence over the priorities of God. They, they flip-flop. He put it this way, worldliness is whatever any culture does to make sin seem normal and sophisticated and to make righteousness, godliness, seem strange. That's worldliness. 
when the moral and spiritual landscape gets flipped upside down. In other words, it's taking what God says is moral, what God says is spiritually beneficial, and replacing it with what we believe is moral, what we think will bring spiritual vitality. In simple terms, it's taking God's universe and flipping it upside down. It is suppressing godliness, exalting vileness. And you have to realize this, that David is not merely giving us a commentary on those people out there as opposed to us here. David is not shaking his fist at the culture out there. No, he's making a comment about every human being, David included. And how do I know that? We'll look again at verse 1 and verse 8. Notice there's one word that ends both of those lines. The children of man. Actually, in Hebrew, it's children of Adam, Adam. David is talking about every human being who is a descendant from the first human created by God, Adam himself. So David is not saying, God, help us. Faithfulness and godliness have vanished from those people over there. They are the problem. If you would just save us from them, then we would be okay. This is not a commentary on that. This is not self-righteous culture war shaking of a fist at socialism or progressivism or fascism or this phobia or that phobia or conservatism or toxic masculinity or anything that any side wants to shake their fist at. That is not David's angle here. David is not making a statement about just them there. David cries out every human being, every child of Adam, David, Israel, Christians, pastors have jettisoned godliness and exalted vileness. We've turned God's universe upside down. It's a humbling picture. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this exaltation of vileness displayed. You know, I've seen it displayed countless times. Lust, greed, envy, jealousy, sensuality, adultery, divorce, Pride, that is, people captivated by and absorbed in nothing but shameful and useless vileness. All of that is on display every time I go to the grocery store. And you might be saying, where do you shop? <laughs> that those kind of people are at your grocery store. I'm not talking about the people in the grocery store. I'm talking about what greets you when you push your cart through the line at the grocery store. On all the tabloids, every grocery store has lust, greed, envy, jealousy, sensuality exalted in your face. And you know what I think every single time I go into that grocery store? I think, look at these magazines. Look at this filth. How can I bring my children here? Don't they want this place to be family friendly? Don't they want this to be a wholesome environment where innocent children, think of the children, the innocent children can come and they can shop in peace? And even though I say that to myself, I really do. Every time I go into that grocery store, do you know what the first thing I do when I go into the line? I look. I look. I look at the tabloids. I look. I look at lust and sensuality at the woman on the fitness magazine promoting lust and sensuality. I look in envy and jealousy at the celebrity who's getting the attention I think that I deserve. I stand in self-righteous judgment over the pop star who is filing for divorce. I puff up my chest in pride that I am so much better than all of them. <laughs> Do you look? Do you look? Help, Lord. Help us. 
Save the children of man. Save the children of Adam. We have jettisoned godliness and exalted vileness in its place. Me too. We have turned your good world, God, upside down. Now you know why it's pretty laughable when one author, he's a, he, he's a humanist philosopher, writer, and speaker, said the world is progressively becoming a more moral and virtuous place to live. It's laughable because we know, just looking into our own hearts, that is false. And as bad as that picture is, that's just the outer frame. David starts painting a little bit closer. He adds surrounding detail to his painting. And David says that the root of this moral decay is lies. Lies, lies about God, lies about us, lies in general are the root of moral and spiritual decay. Verses 2 and 3. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Though, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. So you can see he's talking about lies. And then in verse 6, he contrasts this with the word of God. This is what these lies are to be compared to. He says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So notice here this contrast. God's word, how is it described? It's like silver refined seven times in the ancient world and still today in order to purify silver you would put it in a fiery furnace and it would melt the silver down to liquid and they would do this at such a heat that all of a sudden this stuff called dross impurities in the silver would rise to the surface and you'd scoop it off the surface and then repeat the process over again what david is saying is God's word, God's truth is like silver refined, not once, not twice, not three, four, five, six times, but silver refined seven, seven times. God's word is truth. It is perfection. There is no impurity, no defilement in it. When God says something, it is 100% unadulterated, pure truth. Now compare that to the tongue of man, the tongue of the children of man. It's the tongue, it's the lips, it's the heart that believes one thing and speaks another. It's the mouth that utters lies to the neighbor and the mind that believes falsehood. That is the root of all spiritual and moral decadence. A people who have deviated from God's truth, God's pure word, and they believed instead in toxic lies. Oxford Dictionary, they, they always put out the word of the year. You've probably seen this. In 2021, you could probably guess what it was. It was vaccine. Roll your eyes. In 2019, it was toxic was the word. word uh, the word of the year in 2018 was climate. The word in 2016 was post-truth. Post-truth refers to circumstances in which objective facts and reality are less influential in shaping the public perception. But instead, truth is shaped more by emotion and power. In other words, truth is shaped more by what people feel is the case rather than facts about the case. Truth is shaped more by what will advance emotional well-being rather than reality. And it's interesting, even though that concept and that word got notoriety in 2016 and is part of our parlance today, the Bible reminds us post-truth is not a new phenomenon. 
departing from the purity of truth and believing in other things is actually our natural bent as human beings. Paul, who was writing a letter to the Romans uh, during the time of Jesus, or shortly after the time of Jesus, kind of summed up what our condition is as human beings in these words. He says, for what can be known about God is plain. It's plain to them, plain to all humanity, because God has shown it to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. To summarize, that is the great lie right there, that God is not there. God's not there. And as a result, because God is not there, we're free to exchange the pure truth of God for a lie, to exchange God's perfect wisdom for our wisdom, his ways for our ways. We decide. We get to decide. That is the great lie at the root of all spiritual and moral decay, the lie that turns the world upside down. You get to decide. Every time we believe that we can have complete sexual freedom, that we can sleep with who we want, when we want, how we want, whether male or female, homosexual or heterosexual, we believe the great lie that God is not there. He doesn't care about what's right and wrong sexually. You decide. Every time we believe that a male can be a female and a female can be made a male, we believe the great lie that God is not there, that God didn't create us, that he doesn't... Give us a sex and a gender that's to be honored and cared for and cherished. You decide. And please don't mishear me. Do people legitimately struggle with gender dysphoria? Absolutely, yes. Should we treat those people with dignity, love, compassion? Yes. Should we recognize their value as image bearers of our wonderful God and creator? Yes, with an exclamation point. But to move away from what God says to be true about that person and to move toward what is not true of them according to God's pure word, we believe the great lie, the great lie that says, you decide. Every time we believe we'll be happier if we can move on from our spouse, we believe the great lie. The truth of the matter is that the two shall be one, come one flesh. And what God puts together, let not man separate. But we say instead, you decide. Every time we believe that Jesus is just a way to heaven, a way to eternal life, good for me, but not exclusive and for everyone, we believe the great lie that God is not there. He has not revealed himself to us in Jesus. He has not sent his son to die for sinners. You decide. You decide your path to heaven. It's not just Psalm 12. That same lie is echoed over and over and over again throughout the Bible. Maybe the most pro, you know, profound place that it's found in the Bible is in the book of Judges. If you remember the story, God's people are liberated out of Egypt and God gives them a land. He gives them this land to cherish it, to care for it. He gives them his law. He says, live by this law in the land. This is what will lead to your benefit, to your good. But throughout the Bible, Israel is in steep decline, steep moral decadence. They're moving further and further away from the pure truth of God. And in the closing chapters, you really see the spiritual and moral life of Israel hit rock bottom. 
And the story is in Judges chapter 19, where a Levite, who was supposed to be a priest of God, a person who was supposed to bring truth to the people, he takes a concubine to himself and he travels into an Israel town, a town in Israel. And the people of the town, because they had so degenerated morally, they wanted to take the man and rape him to show his dom- their dominance over this man. And this Levite did what was completely unhonorable. Instead, he gives his concubine over to these men and says, take her instead. And throughout the night, this woman is abused and ravaged until the next morning, she goes to the threshold of the door where he's staying in and dies on the spot. And we see the very last verses of the book of Judges at the bottom of this deep spiritual decline, the narrator sums up this awful picture with these words that are at the root of this moral and spiritual decay. The author writes, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God's not there. Therefore, we can exchange his truth for our lies. We decide what's right in our own eyes. That lie is the root of all spiritual and moral decadence. And it's a departure from God's pure word. It is what has turned his good world upside down. And that's why we can say the times are out of joint. Now remind ourselves where we're at. Remember, David is painting this picture. We've seen it's a grotesque picture of a world upside down, spinning out of control, where what is good is called bad, what is bad is called good. The world is plagued by moral decadence, and the root of it are the lies of human beings who have deviated from God's truth. But then, David brings us to the center, where he's been drawing us, he's been trying to drive us to this the entire time. And at the center of this psalm, you see two people speaking. The first person who speaks are the children of Adam. They speak first. And they give out this great boast in verse 4. They say, with our tongues, we will prevail. Our lips are with us, meaning I own my lips. God, thank you very much. Our lips are with us. Who's master over us? That is the creed of the children of Adam. Having denied that God is there, having exchanged his truth for lies, we boast in this swelling pride, and we say, who's master over us? We're on top. God cannot do anything about it. I am my own master. I can be God, the God of my own life, and that creed is repeated on the lips of Satan himself. You remember Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. After God created this beautiful world, he says to Adam and Eve, do not eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And then Satan God's adversary, God's enemy, who the Bible describes as the father of lies, he comes in and we're told he's more cunning than all the other creatures. And the serpent says to Eve, says to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't you see, Eve, we live in a post-truth world. God is not there He will not judge. In fact, you can exchange the truth of God for what you want. You can determine good and evil, right and wrong. And when you eat, you will be like God. You decide because 
You are God. Who is master over you? With lying lips and a double heart, flatterers speak, don't they? And that creed which began on the lips of Satan, they've been picked up throughout time. Protagoras, he was a Greek philosopher, said his philosophy in simple terms, man is the measure of all things. Man determines truth. Man determines morality. Man is the center of the universe. Who is master over man? It was picked up later by Leslie Gore. You didn't think I knew who Leslie Gore was, did you? But if you're under 58 years old, you probably don't know who Leslie Gore is. But she wrote these words, you don't own me. Don't try to change me in any way. You don't own me. Don't tie me down because I'd never stay. I don't tell you what to say. I don't tell you what to do. So just let me be myself. That's all I ask of you. In other words, I am my own master. I decide. I decide. Who are you, God, to tell me otherwise? That is the creed of humankind. So what does God do with this? Well, God speaks back. Verse 5. And he says these beautiful words, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Do you ever find yourself groaning? (coughs) Groaning at the state of the world, groaning because of a decadent moral culture, groaning because of a generation blinded by the lies of different political and sexual ideologies? Do you ever groan? Because of friends who you know who have been victims of or people they know have been victims of mass shootings that are normalized? Do you groan because even church leaders cannot seem to be trusted and they twist words in order to protect themselves? Do you groan because everyone with you says Jesus is merely one way among many and with a double heart speak to you that they love you, that they love you and Jesus loves you, but then tell you a lie that consigns your soul to hell? Are you groaning? Then hear this promise of God. He says, I'll arise. I will arise, and he will place you in the safety for which you long. And it's fascinating, this word of God being spoken, which is perfectly true. Jesus sent his disciples out to go and declare that message, to go and declare the message of Jesus himself, who is the pure word of God, who never lied, who sacrificed himself for sinners. And Paul, one of Jesus' followers, went into a town, town of Thessalonica, And he and his friend Silas realize there's an uproar in the city, so he needs to depart. So he flees the city, and the people of the city coming in a riot in order to arrest Paul and throw him in prison, they come to this house. And we read that when they could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason, another Christian, and some of his brothers before the city's authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Isn't that ironic that people who live in an upside-down world think that Jesus comes and turns the world upside-down instead of making it right-side-up? Those who live in this upside-down world 
see Jesus, who is truth itself, the word of God, God in the flesh, when he came to die for sinners, they crucify him as a criminal. See, the only sinless, pure, undefiled human to ever walk this earth was victim to our falsehood, was victim to our lives, was victim to our deceit and sin. And that same God says this promise. If you are groaning this morning, if you are needy, if you find yourself spiritually poor, if you cry out, help, Lord, then that same Jesus says, I will arise. I will give my people, the poor, the humble, the needy, I will give them the safety that they long for. In my death, I will forgive them of their lies and their deceit. Now, I've been talking about this as I close. You know, I've been kind of gesturing around this the entire time, but really at the root of every lie is Satan. Satan is called in the Bible the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning. And if you have followed Jesus for any period of time and you are on the cusp of temptation, if you are on the cusp of sin, you have felt the lies of Satan. Because I know if you're anything like me, then the first word that Satan speaks when you are on the cusp of temptation and sin is to say into your ear, that sin is not that bad. And then when you believe him, and engage in that sin, what's the next word that he speaks? That sin was horrific. God could never forgive you. That lie, it is exactly that lie, friends, that you need to hear the word of Jesus who says, in pure words like silver refined in a furnace of purified Silver seven times to that Jesus, you need to hear him say this promise. No, your sin is that bad. So bad that Jesus himself had to die a sinner's death to save you. But no, your sin can be forgiven. Jesus has already risen. He has already died. And he has already forgiven sinners and all those who groan under the weight of a world turned upside down. So flee to him, run to him, trust in him. In the words of Martin Luther, he said, that word, Jesus, is above all earthly powers. And he goes on to say that we can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body the world may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That is the promise we trust in. That is the promise of Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father and Almighty God, your words are like purified silver, refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And you, Lord Jesus Christ, are the incarnate word of God, the embodiment of truth itself, who came to answer our cries for help to save from the evil in our own hearts, the lies that we believe. And Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who inspired the words of Scripture, who brought Jesus to birth through the Virgin Mary, we pray to you, God, that we need help. We need you to save us. And Holy Spirit, would you cast our minds to Jesus, the one who speaks truth into our life, who speaks this great promise that he will give us safety 
from the groanings of our heart, the groanings of living under the burden of a world turned upside down by lies. God, make us people who love this truth. Make us be people who love your truth and hold it as precious in our heart. Help us be people who proclaim your glory, your goodness, your righteousness, and who you are. God, make us a faithful people in a faithless generation. We pray this all in the name of King Jesus, our great high priest, and the word of God. Amen.